Hi, I'm Christina. I'm an alcoholic and sharing still gives me anxiety. So bear with me. Um, I actually, you know, I was thinking about, okay, what in the world am I going to talk about? And because I hear experience, strength, and hope through personal stories. I tell them too. And I think that it's been incredible to be able to not only tell and hear people's stories, but also see about the structure of AA. So I actually wanted to talk about service and the traditions. And, you know, I really wanted to also talk about, you know, well, how do we welcome the newcomer? And, you know, are we, are we a welcoming fellowship that sets an example with group unity? I remember the first time I walked into one of these rooms, I was scared out of my mind. I was also really angry because I did not want to get sober. And, you know, with, with still working the steps, you know, I've, I've gotten a little over three and a half years and that feels really good. It feels to, good to be spiritually connected, but I couldn't have done any of it without the fellowship, without service, without trusting God and cleaning house, you know, and another way that I was thinking about, and I'm going to bounce around some parts in the book, but, you know, they talk about how we trudge, you know, together and that's work, not dancing. We don't like waltz our way to, um, to the happy destiny or working hard. And that can be really daunting at times. I know it was for me. And then when I started working the steps, I, I felt free for the first time. And the biggest example of that was step one. Actually, step one was something that wasn't steeped in shame the way I thought it was. It was this admission instead of omission of who I was um, and how alcoholism was affecting me. And AA has truly saved my life. And, you know, another thing that I wanted uh, that I was thinking of is you know how do we demonstrate that we're we're not a glum lot and I think we do that through fellowship I think we do that through again through sharing our stories and it's a in the back of the book it talks about they um Bill W and Dr. Bob had received this award called the Lasker Award and it's one of the last sentences in there that says we are kinship of common suffering and that always stood out to me because it's like instead of it being misery loves company it's we get to we get to be lifted out of that and that's a gift and you know another thing about how how are we welcoming to the newcomer is that how are we practicing our primary purpose which is how to carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. And I wanted to read a few of the traditions because I know that we're in tradition nine with it being September. But when I was looking at some of the long forms of them, I the one that's that stuck out to me the most was tradition five, which is each group has but one primary purpose to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. But I said that already. But then I really started thinking about that's responsibility. We actually have a responsibility statement. We have an obligation to, you know, 
give away what we have gotten or what we have received and which ties into um, the 12th tradition. But, you know, as a newcomer, newcomer, like learning how to stay sober, I think was, or learning how to get sober was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And I've had three children, <laughs> I've been married twice. I, you know, have had all these really difficult things come up in my life and truly getting sober was the most difficult and rewarding thing that, that I've ever come across. And, you know, I'm, let's see, I'm going back to, I guess I only have a little bit to say about it, but because I was going to read all of the traditions, but it was really the fifth one that stood out to me. And I think what I'll say is like, are we keeping the principles of the program in the forefront of all of our discussions and considering things at places like our business meetings, our fellowship, because we really are a multidimensional group. Um, and, you know, hope, and we work those through honesty, hope, surrender, courage, willingness, love, responsibility, discipline, awareness, and service. And navigating the 12 traditions, again, can also be pretty daunting because they, you know, how am I working the steps and then how am I also trying to pair them with the, you know, with the principles and the traditions because it just, there's so many levels to service. There's so many levels to um, being truly to be able to be connected with, with AAA. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, Bill W had this really nice thing that he said about the traditions. And it was that the AA traditions are neither rules, regulations, nor laws. We obey them willingly because we ought to and because we want to. Perhaps the secret of their power lies in the fact that these life-giving communications spring out of a living experience and are rooted in love. And with that, I'll claim 24, another 24 hours in my seat. Thanks so much for having me. Good Saturday evening to all of you. My name is Chuck and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. You know, I say that, that is my mantra. I say that I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic because many years I was sitting in a meeting and I realized how grateful I am to be in recovery when I talk to what we refer to sometimes as normies, um, the benefits of being in this program. And I'm really grateful to be here. Um, I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to give be of service. Um, and let me just start it off with what it was like. I have as of today, and sometimes it's it just baffles me um because I didn't come into AA to stay a long time. I really didn't. I came here to spend a little time to appease my wife and then I would go ahead and do what I needed to do. But 
they didn't turn out that way. I've been sober now for 36 years, three months and four days. And it's been a journey. It's been a real journey. I started off drinking um, when I was about mm, 12, 11, 12 years old. I was raised in Berkeley, California. Um, went through the Berkeley elementary schools, went to Jefferson Elementary School, went to King Junior High School, went to Berkeley High School. Um, my father was a preacher. My mother was a teacher. Uh, so there were a lot of, there was a lot of structure in my life growing up. And my father had, had, had two brothers too, one who's passed away. Um, but my father believed at an early age that his sons should be able to handle a little wine with dinner on Sundays. Um, and I never will forget the the first little sip of alcohol I had, the wine. I just, I just felt, I, one, I felt like a grown-up. And two, I vaguely remember now, but I remember feeling different. And I remember feeling more confident um, because I had the alcohol. In me. And I didn't think nothing of it to go back to my father's liquor cabinet and just help myself at times. Didn't have to wait till Sundays. And... He responded by locking the liquor cabinet because what I was doing, I thought I was doing everything right. I would go through there and I would take whatever I wanted and drink it. And then I noticed there was a difference in the volume of the bottle. So then I would fill the bottle back up with water. And I did, was too young to think that or know the difference that, you know, you just fill up with water. It's going to separate and you can tell. So shortly, I don't know how long ago, how long after I started, but the liquor cabinet was then locked. So... That ended that until I got into junior high school. And then I started developing friendships with people who were like-minded. And we just started getting beer from um, other friends and older friends. And that went on into high school. And at the time, the park across the street, I think it's Martin Luther King Park now. It was called Provo Park back then. So a lot of times I would spend most of my day at Provo Park, hanging out, smoking a little whatever and and drinking and i i got the reputation in high school for being um i wasn't the best of people and i hung out with some of the worst of people and some then uh, as uh, through a period of time i think by my junior and senior year the teachers knew about me so they watched out for me um i remember there was one time where we went on a school um, field trip to Angel Island. And I had gotten word that they were going to search me before we got on the ferry. So I'm thinking, okay, what do I do? I still want to bring this. I had a big fifth of something that I was bringing that we were going to split up. And so I found this young lady who I convinced to take it in her big purse. She took the bottle. So, and I bought, a, I intentionally bought a big bottle of Coca-Cola because I knew they were going to search me and I couldn't wait to see their faces, the teachers and everything as we were getting ready to board the boat. They thought they had busted Chuck. They did, they, they, oh, we caught him with something. We caught him with a big ass bottle and they pulled the bottle out. It was a bottle of Coke. And I just looked at them and they were frustrated. By then her name was Jackie. Jackie had already been on the boat. So we got the alcohol and I learned how to skip through that. And I got into photography back then too because my father did some photography he had a dark room in the house and 
I became a teacher's aide in the photography lab, which was perfect because I got beer. I came into the photography lab first thing in the mornings and we had what was called a water wash where we'd rinse the prints back then with cold water. Well, I stuck the six packs of beer in there first thing in the morning because that would get them cold so we could have me and my boys, we could have something cold to drink at lunchtime. And so that's how that just kept going and going and going. And I managed to graduate high school. And I found out a couple of years later when I came back to visit high school that some of the teachers said we had voted you is the most likely to not succeed. And uh, that kind of hurt me a little bit, but it, you know, back then I, just, I didn't give a shit. So I just like, okay, that's fine, whatever. I'll just keep on trucking. So then I decided I was gonna go to junior college and, and um, just hang out. You could buy books, you could sign up for a class, you could buy books and then just not show up. And that's what I did. Because I found that if I bought the books and I showed my mother, she would leave me alone. And then I could go to school, I could hang out with my boys, and everything was fine. Well, I failed at Laney. Then I moved to College of Alameda. And I failed at College of Alameda. Now I'm figuring that this is, is, is it's on them. This is on them. And um, so I finally went to Merritt College. And at that point I said, I need to change something. So let me just stop drinking Monday through Friday. And so I can be a good student. Because at that point, I wanted to get out of Berkeley. I, I, I just wanted to get out of Berkeley. So I did. I buckled down. I went to school. I applied to three what they call historically Black colleges, universities in the country. And I figured whichever one um, accepted me first, I would go to. So Morehouse College accepted me. And Morehouse College is in Atlanta, Georgia. And I knew no one in Atlanta, Georgia. But I went. I was scared shitless. I really was but I was ready to leave. And I remember it was a hot August night um, that I left San Francisco airport. And that was the first time me and my father got drunk together. Now my father was an alcoholic and my father died when he was 52 because he would not stop drinking. But again, that was my first time drinking with him. And I got on the plane and the next thing I know there's a stewardess waking me up and I'm, I'm in Georgia. So I checked into the school um, I had to be in a, even though I was coming in as a sophomore, um, I still had to stay in the freshman dorm. So I stayed in the freshman dorm and it was hot and it was no air conditioning. And I walked the halls a lot. And I never will forget as I was walking from my room down to the restroom, I passed this one room and the door was wide open because we all kept our doors open. Um, and I saw the biggest bottle of wild turkey I'd ever seen in my life. And there was this other guy sitting there next to it at his desk. And I stopped. I mean, I'd like, and I just, and I looked at it and I looked at him and he says, and he was very tall, lanky dude. And his name was Donald Tyler. And I said, Hey man, what's happening? What's up? What's up, man? He said, how are you? Who are you? And I said, I'm Chuck, man. And I said, how are you Donald? Yes, my name is Donald. And I said, okay, Donald, nice to meet you. And so I said, can I come on in? Because I never had a problem with talking to people. So he's like, come on in. So I started talking and I kept looking at that bottle. It's like, man, I want a sip of that. And so I said, man, that's a nice bottle of wild turkey you got there. You, you gonna crack that soon? And he said, that's for a special occasion. And I said, well, this is special. I'm just meeting you for the first time. And he was like, he was like, 
no, no, I'm not going to open it. I'm not going to open it. I said, I understand that. Now I'm saying this, but in my mind, I'm thinking, oh no, you're going to crack that bottle and we're going to split it and we're going to drink it. We don't have to drink it all the night, but we're going we're gonna to crack this one. I made that uh, like a goal for that night. And before that night was over, he opened the bottle and we started drinking and we became friends for the rest of the time that I was there. And the first year was pretty quiet. I did what I was supposed to do, got good grades, came back home. My girlfriend was in Tuskegee, Alabama at the time. So she, we get together about once a month. And then, um, then I came back the following year and I started playing a little baseball. And then that's when everything hit the fan again. Now I'm playing sports again. And I hook up with the jocks and we start drinking all over the place. And my drinking just took off just where it left off. And I can remember at that point, sitting in my dorm room window, watching a thunderstorm approach us and realizing for the first time that I was an alcoholic. Because I remember saying it to myself, you're an alcoholic. You're an alcoholic. But I didn't do anything about it. I just kept playing baseball. And then I came home for the summer just for a little bit. It was just for a little bit. But then my father got really ill and he ended up in ICU for about a week. And then he got out and then I was with him at, in um, the hospital one day when the doctor came in and his name was Chuck as well. And he said, Chuck, I got some good news and some not so good news for you. He said, the good news is, is you're doing better. The not so good news is if you <clears throat> continue to drink, you will live about two to five more years. If you stop drinking, you can live longer. And my father decided that he did not want to stop drinking. And almost five years later, he died. Um, but I was helping him get to and from the hospital, but I was also taking his liquor and drinking it so he wouldn't drink it. And to me, that wasn't a problem because I was helping my father out. And when he passed away, I felt so cheated because we did have this moment where we kind of split up from each other and I couldn't stand him. And then as I was helping him um, with his illness, we became closer. And as we got really close, then he died. And I felt really, really cheated out of life. And I never will forget shortly after he died, sitting outside of his house on the curb with a fifth of vodka, just turning it up and just getting shit faced. And I just took off with her. A little, a little after that, I met who was going to be my wife um, and who still is my wife today. Um, I was going out with my cousins to a party in San Francisco. They were visiting up from Los Angeles. And, and I said, I'll take you to the city. We'll just do some partying. But we got to stop by this other, this, uh, this my brother's girlfriend's house. She's having some gumbo over there. We just chill for a second. And we got over there and in walked this woman with this fuchsia dress on with a split up the middle and caught my eye. And I just like, whoa, 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 whoa. And so long story short on that one, we started dating and she could drink. She could drink me under the table. And she had seven sisters and one brother and they lived in West Oakland. And when I went over there for the first time, the house was full. It was a Friday night and it was just family, but it was like a big party and her mother could drink. And I was like, this is heaven. 
everybody's drinking here. So that's what we did. I just drank with them all on the weekends. The only difference was that my wife could stop drinking on Sunday morning and I couldn't. I would get up on Sunday morning and I would have the shakes. And the only way that I could get rid of that was to have something to drink. So I just did. I just kept doing it. And she didn't say anything at first. And we got married. <clears throat> Had our first child, or son, my son. And um, I kept drinking. And we got to a point where we wanted to purchase a house. I had stopped drinking at that point on my own and said I would just do it on special occasions. You know the routine, special occasions here. Oh, somebody died or something like that. I'd have it over there. But I had stopped for a little bit. I was dry. I was dry. And I got it. I'd gone back to school, got a certificate in computer programming, got a job down in Silicon Valley with a software company, which was cool because I was able to use one of the things I was kind of a, I did turn out to be kind of a nerd because my major when I was in, when I decided to go away to school was, was mathematics and chemistry. So um, that was something that my father just instilled in my head that mathematics was just another language to learn. And he was right. So I got down in Silicon Valley and was able to program computers using some of the schooling that I had used. And so it was cool. But then they started, they gave us flex time. And I didn't know what flex time was until they told me, no, you can come in whenever you want. Just have to work eight hours a day and then you can leave. And so I said, okay, fine. And I did that okay for a while until one day they said, let's get together and go to this beer garden in Los Gatos. So I went with them. <clears throat> and that was the first time that I sat down. I said, well, I really don't want to go. And my office mate, he said, come on, Chuck, you really got to go. You really got to go. So I went. And he said, you got to have at least one beer. You got to have at least one beer. And I had that one beer. And I remember it tasting so sweet and it was cool and going down. And then I just had another one, then another one, and then another one. And it started all over again. And it got to the point to where um, I needed to, needed to just kind of readjust myself. Now, instead of coming into work on time and stuff, or first thing in the morning, I was coming in later on in the afternoon and staying until late at night. And then after a while, it's like, I can't stay until late at night because I'm starting to feel a little shaky and I need something to drink. So I would leave and not knowing at the time that that same little swipe card that I had to use to shine, sign out was, I mean, sign in was signing me out when I went out. And that's how they found out that I was not working. And I was reporting that I was working for eight hours a day, but I wasn't working for eight hours a day. So my wife and I decided we were going to purchase a house. And two days before we were going to purchase a house, I got laid off. And I was like, what are we going to do, baby? What are we going to do? I was ready to step back and get away from the house. My wife said, no, let's go forward with it. So we did. And it turns out that my severance package helped pay the closing costs on the house. But I had no job. And didn't know where I was going to go. But what I did do is I took some money and I had a pickup truck and I put sideboards on it and made some flyers. And I started passing out flyers that I would haul. And I started doing a hauling business on my own. And the cool thing about that is now my father taught me how to drink. He said, Chuck, don't get scotch, bourbon, get vodka. 
get vodka because it's harder for people to smell the vodka. So that's what I did. But I wasn't an alcoholic at that time because I was only drinking Stoli's and Smirnoff, silver and all because alcoholics to me didn't didn't buy the, the top shelf stuff. But I only bought it in half pints and pints because that way I could stick it up under the seat of my truck and I could drive around and do what I needed to do. And I did that for some a little bit of time. I did that for a little bit of time. Excuse me. And I did not know why I did not throw the bottles away when I was finished. I hid them in the house and I hid them in places where I told my wife, well, you know, I saw a couple of mice downstairs by this and that and this and that. So I got some traps down there. So don't worry about it if you see them. Because I knew if I played that game with her, she wouldn't go down there and find my empty bottles. One of the reasons why I kept any empty bottles, but not the total reason, was back then there were glass bottles. And you could sweat a bottle. And a lot of people didn't know how to sweat a bottle. But how you would sweat a bottle is you take that bottle, put the top, leave the top on it, leave it real tight. And in the middle of the night, which is what I experienced when everybody else in the house was asleep, and I'd get the jitters or something, or I just needed a drink. I'd take that bottle over the stove, light one of the burners, and just take that bottle and go over the top. There's alcohol in the glass, and the pressure inside makes that bottle sweat out that alcohol. And if you do that with enough, enough bottles, you can get a little half shot out of there. So I kept that, and I kept it going. But I didn't throw those bottles still away. And so I just kept doing what I was doing. Until a few years later, we were pregnant with our second child. And I came home one day early. And um, my, there was a big green gross, a great big green um, plastic bag, trash bag on the front porch. And I came up the stairs. I didn't know what the hell was in this bag. And then I, I touched the bag and I could hear all the empty bottles in there. My wife had found the empty bottles in the house. And um, I bought my heart just sunk. I just knew I was busted then and I didn't know what to do. By then she came to the front door and um, she said, I found these. She said, you have a problem and you need to address this problem. Rose, I'm leaving you. I'm taking your son and the second baby that I'm carrying. And so unless you do something about it. And so I said, okay, I'll do something about it. Um, so I talked to my brother at the time and I said, well, she busted me, so I don't, but I don't have the money to do anything. And my brother, he said, find a program. Now he drank too, but he, he said, find a program and I'll pay, I'll pay your way. And he did. I went to MPI. Um, I went in to be evaluated whether or not I needed a inpatient or an outpatient. I wanted to come in as an outpatient because I figured that I could drink and then come in and listen to their little spiel and then I can go back out and drink again. But I found out that they were gonna be running random urine tests and stuff like that. So that just scratched that for me. So I had to do the 28 day program and I did it. I did the 28 day program because my wife wanted me to. And then the end of the 28 day, and it was about day 30 or 31, my daughter was born. And I was so happy because I had been raised around boys and I had a daughter, but even though I didn't know what to do because I was a little bit scared too, but it was time to celebrate. <laughs> so I went to 
29, 29th and Broadway, Broadway Liquors, and bought a small bottle of Chevy's. My wife was going to, she had Danielle, my daughter, um, on that Sunday, September 7th, 1986. And I knew that she was going to be in the hospital till at least Tuesday. So I went and got the Chevys Sunday night, and I figured I could drink Sunday night and Monday and just cool it. It didn't go that way. I started drinking that day, and that drink lasted me from September 7th. 1986 to June 26, 1987. And then I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. So I took my ass to 2910 Telegraph, which was central office at the time. And when you walk into central office back then, you had to come up the stairs. And as you came up the stairs, you turned left, turned left, and came inside. And right as soon as you came inside the room on, on the back wall was a, a heater. And I used to sit at the chair in front of the heater and lean my chair up against there and, and just listen in meetings. And that's all I did for a little while, just listen. Until an old timer came to me one day and he said, what are you getting out of this meeting? Are you getting anything out of it? And I said, I'm not really getting that much out of this. And he said to me, what are you putting into it? And I just looked at him and I said, well, and he said, do you have a sponsor? And I said, no, I don't have a sponsor. He said, do you have a big book? I have a big book. He said, well, go find a sponsor and start working the steps. I said, okay. He said, just raise your hand and you'll find a sponsor. So I, I took his advice and I went to a meeting and when they said, does anybody need a sponsor? I raised my hand, I stuck in my hand and I figured all these men would come and say, we'll take care of you. And nobody did nothing. Nobody did anything. And I just, I felt a little rejected. And so I came back to 2910 and the old guy was there again. And he says, you find a sponsor? I said, no, I didn't find a sponsor. Nobody wanted to sponsor me. He said, well, keep doing it until you find a sponsor. And so I did. And the first person that I saw one time, his name was Paul C. And Paul was very animated. And I liked that because during his share, he stood up on the table and had cowboy boots on. He was stomping his feet. And I was like, oh, shit, I got to have somebody like that. And that's what I, I asked him. Will you be my sponsor? I had the nerve to ask him. And he looked at me. He said, yeah, are you willing to do the steps? I said, yeah. So Paul lived at, at um, Piedmont and Broadway, MacArthur, in those apartments. And I started going to his apartment twice a week, I think it was, at night. And we'd had this one, I was still smoking cigarettes and it's cigarettes and coffee and the steps. Some of the hardest shit I've ever had to go through. I started crying. He sat there, he let me cry. And I said, Paul, why am I crying so much? He said, Chuck, you've got a lot of pain inside of you. You need to let it go. We're, we're working through this. And he, I said, but I've been crying a lot over shit, man. I never cried this much in my life. He said, you need to. He said, there's 50 miles into the forest, it's 50 miles out, there's no shortcuts. And my crying got so bad, I mean, I could watch, I'm telling you, I could watch TV and there'd be little kittens on TV doing something and I'm just weeping and my wife's just looking at me trying to figure out what the, but it was, it was like that with me. But I accepted it because I had been someplace I didn't wanna go back to. So I started working those steps and my life got easier. 
it got better. And the other thing that I feared because I came into the sobriety with, I had a bunch of friends on, on the drinking side, but now we're, the rift between us started getting further and further and further apart. But the friendships that I developed within the meetings, they were much stronger and much more true. The first few years I spent, I would say most of my day at in-between. Because at the in-between at that time, you could go in there, you could sit at the bar, you could smoke your cigarettes and have coffee. And then they start a meeting, you start a meeting, you go to the meeting and then um, between meetings, we'd be playing dominoes right there, smoking cigarettes and having coffee. And those somehow, that's how some of my days were spent when I had nothing else to do because I was too afraid to go out there by myself. Um, and then I got a job and I started working that job. I turned around and I went back to school over at University of San Francisco and completed my degree over there. And then I got another job and I kept that. And then I started to the point where this is really working. I think it was about year five, between five and 10, let's say. This is really working. And I got involved in the church because now I had small children and my mother said, you need God in your life. And I was like, okay, I'll try that too. So I went, started going into church and I started getting really involved in the church. And spiritually, it was like, it was, it was satisfying me as well. And I was like, okay, maybe I don't need to go to AA as much because I'm here at church. I mean, they're both spiritual, so I'm good. So I stopped going to meetings slowly to, I mean, it's cutting them down, cutting them down to there's no meetings at all. When I got to about year 10. And then one day I was walking downtown and I saw this woman named Daphne. And Daphne said, hey, Chuck, how you doing? I haven't seen you at any meetings. You've been going to any meetings? I was like, no, Daphne, I haven't. I'm in church right now. And she said, Chuck, you're on a slippery slope. And I don't know why that resonated with me that day, but it did. And I turned around and started going to meetings again and started seeing how much I was really missing. Those people at the church were good for some things, but you people were better. You offered me strength. You offered me hope. You offered me a solution. Got back with my, with, um, you know, my sponsor by then had, had gone out, but I found another sponsor, worked with him, Years 10 through 15 were good. 15 through 20, I did the same thing. Stop going to meetings. Never drank during these periods, but stopped going to meetings. Couldn't understand why I was getting so hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. But I was. And I ran into somebody else again at about year 18, 19. And he said, I haven't seen you in any meetings. I said, yeah, because I don't go. I've been, you know, I'm back with the church. He's, he said, man, you're again, you're, you're, you're flirting with it. And so I turned around and went back at year 20. <clears throat> so I started going to meetings and I just said that this is the way it's going to be. It's just that simple. You stop going to meetings. I was very fortunate not to go back out there and do that. So I stayed this time and I got another sponsor. And this sponsor just challenged me. He did, I worked with Larry so well that it just showed me a whole different life. And now I started doing more service work. Um, 
I started going to meetings that I normally wouldn't go to because my sponsor suggested it to me. He said, where do you go to meetings? I said, well, <clears throat> go to in between. I go over here, down in West Oakland. I go over here. He said, try going to some meetings in Alameda. I said, why? He said, I want you to try to go to meetings that you probably wouldn't go to so that if you ever get to a point where you need to go to a meeting, you won't ever think that I can't go there because I don't belong there or I don't this or I don't that, I don't fit in. Because if it's AA, you fit in. I was a little reluctant to do that, but I did it. I started going over to Alameda for meetings and then I made a game of it. It was, I say a game, but it really wasn't a game. It became fun. It became really fun to me. So I started bouncing around to meetings all over the Bay Area. I used to go to San Francisco to meetings just for the hell of it, just to see and meet new people. Um, then there became a time where um, I didn't say, what I didn't say is even though I was learning photography when I was younger, it was a hobby then and still was a hobby as I grew up, even though I got my degree in something else. I loved photography and I started getting into it so much that today I am a professional photographer. That's what I do now. Um, but I travel a lot around the Southwest United States is where I like to do. And one time I was in, this is an example of why I think it was a good idea for my sponsor to tell me to do what he did, do what he suggested I do as far as going to meetings. Because I was in Southern Utah and I needed to go to a meeting. It wasn't hurting, hurting, but I just knew I needed to go to a meeting. And I said, I'm in Southern Utah. Does that bother me? No. So I looked online or called some, I forgot how I did it, but I found out in this particular town, of Springdale, Utah, they only had a meeting one day a week, one freaking day a week. And I just happened to be there, excuse me, on that day. I didn't know what to expect. I went in there, I opened the door and I was preparing for whatever. And all I got was smiles and hugs, welcome, welcome. I sat down, had one of the best meetings in my life. Afterwards, I chatted with a few people, told them why I was there, and then that was it. And I was convinced that, yeah, you just, no matter what meeting it is, just go, just go. Um, and that's and that helped me immensely. While at home now, the way it is now, um, is for me, it's all about the service and the newcomer. I don't sponsor a lot of people. Um, I don't know why that is. I don't aggressively seek them. And if they come to me and they want a sponsor, then I'll work with you. My thing is H&I. I'm an H&I guy. Um, hospitals and institutions, the first time I did that, probably was about in around year 20. Um, and I volunteered to go into a psych unit at Alta Bates and have meetings. And I realized that there were people from talking to people in there, that you could have a crowd of 20 people in a, in a meeting and only one person would want information to, to keep going on that trek towards sobriety. And to me, that's all that mattered. It didn't, it didn't have to be all 20 of you need to do this. 
is the fact that one of you that night wanted to do it and maybe none of you wanted to do it, but at least we're taking an opportunity for you to have a meeting. And I saw the beauty in that. Um, I did, I was a little nervous at first because I don't, I don't, lockdown units, I mean, the first time I went in there and we hit the buzzer, I was with the guy who was the secretary, the co-secretary, and we, the door opened up and when the door closed, it went clunk. And I was like, holy shit, I can't get out of here either. But that's, I mean, once I sat there, it was to me, it's the most rewarding feeling that I could ever have. It's be able to take something that I have learned and offer it to somebody else. And, but they're helping me too, because I met people in there who said, I don't know why I'm here. I was drinking. I blacked out and now I'm here. I got to stay in here for 30 days. And I was like, that could have been me. There's no difference between me and them. I just happened to hit the fork of the road, went right and they went left. But I could, if I kept on, if I kept on, things were definitely going to change. And so I kind of, I said, I kind of like this H&I stuff. So I started looking for different H&I gigs as the years went through. Um, the beauty part about this is that, perfect, thank you. My life has changed so much, man. I can't even begin to tell you for the better. The things that I dreamt of are happening. Yes, I'm a professional photographer, but I call my shots. Um, I did something else. I worked for the, well, I skipped a part. I worked for the city of Oakland for almost 25 years. And I also taught at Peralta College School District for six years. I do two jobs. I'd work in the daytime at the city of Oakland in the computer department. And then in the evening, I taught classes. So it, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I thought it was the funniest thing to get paid for, but I did. Um, so I was able to retire early. And I took the photography from a hobby level to a professional level, which is quite busy, but it's it's fun. The other thing that I've learning, I'm learning to do is speak Spanish now. It's something I've always wanted to do is speak multiple languages. And I'd always had a dream of speaking Spanish, speaking and speaking Arabic and speaking English. Um, but the Spanish is coming along really, really well. It's in so much is that at one point I had an H and I gig at a men's halfway house that was part Spanish speaking and English speaking. Now I did the English speaking uh, meetings there, but I hung out for the Spanish speaking meetings because every time I get the opportunity to speak Spanish, I grab it. I couldn't do any of this had it not been for this place called Alcoholics Anonymous. None of it. I just got back from um, I call it a spiritual retreat. Um, I went backpacking. That's something I started about maybe 10 years ago. I went by myself up into the mountains. And it's very peaceful. Um, it's also, I call it the ultimate fairness in our society because I said a bear or a mountain lion doesn't care what color you are. A bear or a mountain lion doesn't care what gender you are. You just have to stay out of their way. So to me, it's just total equality back in the back country. And I love it. I absolutely love it. 
My meditation time is the first thing in the morning or last thing in the evening. Is it is it difficult sometimes to say, yeah, I pray and meditate every day? Yeah, sometimes it is. But most times it isn't. Um, I just want to, at this point, just keep giving. Because the more I give, the more I received. And I know that sounds cl cliche-ish, but it is so freaking true. I have family members who are still alcoholics. And some other family members want me to grab them and just bring them along. Come. And I can't, I tell them I can't do that. I can't go into that hole where they are. But if they reach out, I'll be the I'll be the hand that reaches out to them, pulls them up. And I've done that. I did that with my brother. And I mentioned him earlier because he passed away in 2015, but he had 15 years of sobriety. And that was made our worlds. I mean, he both him and me, because the last two years of his life, Peter was his name. And Peter and I were, were just almost inseparable. So when he passed, I was with him and I was sober. And I held onto his hand until he took that last breath. And I was so grateful that I was sober to do that. To say it wasn't painful would be lying. It was very painful. I, I had to go to therapy for the, for it. But now that I look back and I see his smile and I see those last two years of his life, both of us were sober. And I have, I have the program to thank for that. And I'm going to end with this little thing that I always said lately at, this meet, at the meetings I go to. Being around other alcoholics, being in the meetings is like being in a nice warm cabin in the middle of the mountain. You guys are always there for me. I may not know you personally, but you guys are always there for me and I'm always there for you. It's warm in there. We can eat in there. We can commune in there. And every now and again, that door opens up and that front door opens up and you can see it just snowstorming out there. And some newcomer comes in and says, whoa, shit, man. It's crazy out there. This and that and this and, and I can't even, woo. And then they close the door and we say, welcome in. Now, I don't want to need to go back out there. He just came here. She just came in and told me what it's like out there. What do I need to go back out there and see for? I saw it for myself. I don't need to go back out there. So I'll just stay in here in the warm room with you all. Cuddle up, talk. We might even argue sometimes, but I don't want to go back out there. And so for that, I want to thank you all for being here. I didn't think that I would last this long, but I did. And it's okay. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to be service for you, do service with you and for you. And I hope that everybody is enjoying their program. Thanks. I'm out.